This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've got Sarah Forte on the line. She's a labor and employment lawyer and founder of Forte Law. Now, since 2004, she's practiced exclusively in the areas of employment labor law. That's what we're going to talk about today. She focuses on solving work-related problems, everything from hiring to firing and everything in between. Uh, Langley Kidd, uh, 12 years of working for leading firms in Vancouver back in November 2016, took the leap to open up her own firm and now has offices in Surrey and Langley. Uh, Sarah is very active in business and legal community, as well as a frequent author and speaker on employment law and other topics. Sarah, we're so happy to have you on the show. So let's let's start. I know I've used an employment lawyer over the years, um, really just one specific time, because in this business, radio business, uh, you're only as good as your last gig, newscast, commercial, whatever it is, and uh, I needed some help with that. So, um, so I'm sort of familiar with it, but but what are the what are the parameters? When do you know you need to get an employment lawyer? Um, I'm going to answer that question from the perspective of an, of an employee because, of course, both parties sometimes need advice, the employee and the employer. Um, but when I'm advising individuals, most frequently it's when their employment has come to an end. Uh, employees will call me for advice if they think they're about to get fired or even more frequently after they've been fired. Sometimes they come with a severance package in hand and they're hoping for someone to take a look at that and let them know what's fair or what's reasonable for their situation. Um, when I'm advising employers, like companies, um, they'll call me often also around the time when they're thinking of letting someone go. Um, sometimes they'll call me after they've received a legal claim by an employee. And companies will also hire me proactively to prepare employment contracts or policies. Um, I'm getting a lot of requests for bullying and harassment policies and sexual harassment policies um, and a lot of requests about drug and alcohol policies with, with marijuana in the workplace being in the news. Yeah, that's a huge new topic for everybody, isn't it? It is. It's definitely a topic of interest. We're getting lots of questions, and the landscape has been changing daily, weekly for months. I, I would say the last year, there's been evolutions all the time in terms of what's happening, so it's it's hard but important to keep up to date. Can we talk a little bit about that right now? Because I hadn't even thought about that, um, just because you know I have my own personal biases around it. What What are the sort of things that you're telling employers, I guess, to start with about it? Sure. When employers are calling and asking lots of questions and and very concerned about how the legalization of marijuana is going to impact their workplace, Um, in in large part, my advice is, well, for starters, at at least at this point, it's it's still not legal. Um, I think the anticipated date is in October. Um, The but when that does come in, then we're going to be looking at marijuana and treating it in a similar way to alcohol. Um, and, and what that means is you as an employer still don't have to permit employees to work if they're impaired. And, and that's the bottom line, and that's not going to change. And you wouldn't be allowed, as a result of that, you, it wouldn't be something that you could bring in your, uh, into your place of employment, just like 
it's not good or illy or against all the rules, depending on who you work for, to have it in your locker or in your cubbyhole or in your office or something like that? Well, the same rules would apply I, that would apply to alcohol. Um, so that would be the, the way we would look at it. The only difference would be um, potentially if we're dealing with medicinal marijuana where you have a legitimate doctor's prescription and you're using it um, to treat a disability. Okay, yeah, see, that's another good point because there's nothing, alcohol never falls into that medicinal um, category, does it? Not that I've heard. <laughs> I mean, sometimes I, I, don't I, know. I sometimes hear people say they're going to take a drink after a, a long day or a bad day. Yeah. I don't know that my doctor has ever prescribed me to go home and have a glass of wine, but certainly mm-hmm. my friends do. Yes, yeah. the, exactly. The self-medicating is probably not too encouraged by the medical community, I, I assume. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Sarah, we talked yeah. about you know re- retaining an employment lawyer when employment comes to an end. Um, and I wonder, you know, at the outset when you're starting new employment, I would think you know this is one maybe people don't think about as often. But can it be important to, to uh, consult with an employment lawyer, get them involved if you're starting a new position, look over employment contracts and things like that? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad that you asked that, Blair. I, I have to say this is this is one of my one of my issues I'd like to see improved is I'd love to see more people calling in for advice before they sign an employment contract. Mm-hmm. Um, employers get advice about employment contracts, and so one way to level the playing field as an employee is to make sure you're getting advice and going in eyes wide open. Um, generally, employment contracts are written by lawyers for companies, and the companies are their clients, and so they're entirely one-sided, and they're meant to protect the company. Um, employees sign them. Sometimes employees don't even read them, um, and the contracts can really limit their rights. For example, uh, what, what type of things would, would someone have signed that maybe didn't realize? Uh, so frequently I see termination clauses. Those are mm-hmm. common and, and totally legal and, and fair to put in an employment contract, but they really limit what you would be entitled to when the employment relationship comes to an end. The other thing that I see frequently is what we call non-solicitation or non-competes, I think as they're, they're more commonly known. And these are kinds of contract clauses that limit what you can do after you leave employment. Sometimes for up to a year or more after you leave a job, you can still have restrictions that follow you from the old job. Um, I, I see people all the time when their jobs have ended, and the first thing I always do is say, can you send me a copy of your employment agreement? Mm-hmm. Sometimes people don't even know if they have one or they aren't able to get a copy. Oftentimes people send me a copy and they're quite surprised to see what's in it when we review it together. And is there any argument to be made, you know, if they didn't get legal advice at the time or didn't quite understand what they were signing, or is it, you know, they're, they're bound by their signature and that's kind of that? Th- those kinds of arguments are hard to make, Blair. I, I won't say there's no circumstances where they could be made, but generally, if you sign a contract, you're bound by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we have to look for sort of some creative ways to deal with that. It's always better to make sure before you're, whenever you're looking at a contract of any kind, but particularly in employment, that you've read it you're able to understand it, and if you're not, that you go and get some advice on that before you sign it. This business of broadcasting, there's uh, uh, not everybody gets employment contracts or contracts, but um, some do, and there's a couple of things that show up all the time, especially the non-compete. If you're at one radio station and you've been fired and another radio station wants to pick you up right away, then you'll get those non-compete 
clause. And like you said, they can last up to a year. I know some people say, well, where's so-and-so? He's, he hasn't been on the radio for a really <laughs> long time. Well, there's a reason why so-and-so, or, or uh, regardless whether it's a he or she, hasn't shown up uh, recently. Uh, and that's because of that, because of that contract. Nobody wants you competing. Even if they don't want you, they don't want you competing against uh, them at the end of the day, which is kind of selfish, I think, but it's interesting. And boy, oh boy, you need to pay attention to that. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of, we, we could talk for hours about that. You know, there are, from the company side, they'll say, well, we invest a lot of time and training, and, and we're going to teach you everything we know about this business. Um, and so if you then work for us for six months and quit and walk across the street, and with the benefit of everything we've taught you, you know, that that's kind of one of the prevailing considerations. Judges don't like non-solicitation and non-compete clauses, so they're very hard for employers to win on. Oh, that's interesting. In the end of the the day, if they're there and they're in the contract, it can still create some significant problems. Huh, that's very interesting. What are the, are there clear signs when somebody should seek advice from you uh, if they're in a workplace right now and they're listening to this? What are the kinds of things that they need to pay attention to? And I know you're sort of wearing both hats at this point from an employer's point of view and an employee's point of view, but is that is that a, a fair question? Yeah, that's definitely a fair question, and I'm, I'm quite comfortable wearing both hats. I take them on and off all day long. So, <laughs> um, you know, w- when might you want to seek advice? Um, frankly, most people come to me after they've been fired. So that's a really clear space where you're pretty emotional time too. Wow. You, yeah. And you're not, you're, your world is upside down uh, and you're not sure whether what your rights are and whether what you're being offered is fair or reasonable if you're being offered anything at all. So that's a really obvious time. Um, and that's, as I said, when most people come to see me, another time when, when people will come to see me is if they um, have a disability of some kind and physical or mental illness, that's, that's maybe impacting their work, and um, they feel that the employer isn't accommodating that, um, or work, or they're maybe being mistreated because of it. Um, similarly, um, you know, I see pregnancy discrimination or um, different different forms of discrimination uh, that are happening at work. That's a time when you can get some legal advice and, and help put a strategy in place to solve the problem. And I imagine clients, as, as I'm sure, you know, as someone who's just been fired, they're very emotional. It's a tough situation. If someone feels in a tenuous relationship with their job, they might be nervous of, you know, starting to get somebody involved, you know, bring a lawyer into the situation. Um, how do you discuss with somebody that, you know, it's actually it's making their position stronger by showing, you know, that they know their rights, they've got someone to advocate on their behalf, as opposed to them worried, well, my boss will see that I've got a lawyer now. He's going to look for just another reason to get, to get rid of me. Yeah, so almost virtually without exception, I am behind the scenes. Hmm. So if you call a lawyer and go see a lawyer, unless you authorize that lawyer to disclose that, no one is ever going to know that you've seen a lawyer. Right. So uh, that solicitor-client confidentiality is something you've probably heard of, and that that is a fundamental part of our job as lawyers, is keeping things quiet when people come to see us. Um, in most cases, uh, my involvement with people is an initial consultation, a meeting where we go through, we, I listen to their whole situation, and we go through it beginning to end. I help them identify their goals, like are they hoping to fix things at work and stay? Are, are they ready to leave and are hoping for a package? Have they already been left and what have they been offered? Um, we identify the goals and then we look at the legal tools and I help them make a strategy that is going to move them towards their goals. So it's actually, uh, people are quite surprised, I think, that that's that that's the approach, 
it, it's not sort of me getting on the phone to their employer the next day and and swooping in um, because often that creates more problems than solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that uh, it's it's really just advice uh, that one is seeking at that point if you feel if you've already been let go and you're given a severance package. Um, is there some some key things? So let's say I've just been fired, uh, fortu- hopefully not, but uh, just been fired. What do I, um, what's the first thing that I should look for to know that I need to come and see somebody? I guess the first question I would have when someone's been fired is, are you represented by a union or not? Mm, fair if enough. If you are represented by a union, um, the first step you need to do is reach out to your union. They're likely already engaged and aware. Um, and find out from them about your rights, which are quite different in a unionized environment than a non-union environment. People who come to see me are generally not represented by unions, and so they don't have that sort of built-in representation and advice. Uh, And I would say pretty much any situation where you've lost your job, unless you've been through it before and already received legal advice and understand the, the nuances of the package you're being offered and whether it's fair or if you're not being offered a package, whether that's fair, um, I would say you should definitely seek legal advice. Good advice, Sarah. I want to wrap up now uh, and just remind our listener, uh, Sarah Ford is a labor and employment lawyer and founder of Forte Law, F-O-R-T-E, and uh, certainly would be happy to answer questions for you. She's got two offices, one in Surrey and one in Langley. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've been doing this uh, in the show previous. It's called Bankruptcy Myths, and uh, we've talked about key myths and misconceptions that, I don't know, pretty much everybody has about bankruptcy. There's uh, so much fear and uncertainty around bankruptcy that so many folks... Um, just kind of stay in debt because bankruptcy is so scary. I mean, the word, we've talked mm-hmm. about this before, the word itself is so scary in, in today's language. And it hasn't changed, right? Yeah, everything is pretty well designed to scare you the heck away from this legal remedy. Um, and really, yeah, if there was no upside, you would never go bankrupt. Why would you put yourself through it? But when you're dealing with just this incredible, insurmountable mountain of debt, when you're having collectors call you 12, 13 hours a day, uh, when you're worried about being able to feed yourself, let alone your family, you know, sometimes you need a way out. And that's what bankruptcy does. Right. So I think, yeah, I'm really happy to do these segments, Elaine, because I know there are people because they come in and see me in my office and say, you know, I was so scared of this happening and you're telling me it's not going to happen. I wish I'd known that sooner. I would have came in and I wouldn't have suffered for so long. And the first one really, and we'll just briefly go over some of the pieces of it, yeah. um, I'll, I'll lose everything. Yeah, so right? that, that's, that's what people think. That's everyone's, you know, five second um, understanding of bankruptcy. As you go into bankruptcy, you lose everything. Okay, and even myself, you know, before I got into this industry, I thought, well, yeah, you go bankrupt when you when you have nothing left, and even what little you do have is taken from you. You know, why would you want to ever do that? But it's it's quite the opposite, actually. Most people that go through a bankruptcy, they actually keep all of their assets. There's very few things that are seized from them, uh, and the reason for that is provincial governments have legislation that exempts certain assets. Exempt means that you keep them no matter what happens. 
to you. And again, just briefly, there's an exemption for all of your household goods and your furniture. There's an exemption for your clothing. No one's going to take, obviously, clothes off your back, as weird as that would be. You keep everything. Um, there's an exemption for a vehicle if it's worth less than $5,000. And if you have a financed vehicle, that means, you know, do you have equity in that vehicle of more than $5,000, which most finance vehicles, you have zero equity. Um, and you're allowed to keep your tools of the trade. So if you need something to earn income, you know, if you are a musician or, you know, a construction worker or a doctor, anything like that, a dentist, you have certain tools that you need, you, those can never be taken from you. So most of the time people think they lose everything in a bankruptcy. Most people don't lose very much. Oh, that's, see, I just think that's so reassuring for folks because, um, because the word is so scary and and it's just one of those loaded terms. There's so much to it that people can't even think about it. And the one thing that, you know, that you mentioned uh, in the beginning is we all know making minimum payments is not going to get rid of this. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, and that's really important to remember. Oh, yeah. okay. Even a $6,000 debt can be 40 years of making yeah. minimum payments. So you're not doing anything if you're just making minimums. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's continue on then. What yeah. are the other, what, what are the other things that we are, that we sort of have built in misconceptions about. Yeah, this one is getting better and better. But my God, Elaine, two years ago, I was having so many people come into my office. It was breaking my heart because they were doing the wrong thing with their RRSPs. So I think, and uh, hopefully we've played a small role in this, but I think the consciousness, the knowledge base is out there more knowing that RRSPs are your retirement funds and they can never be taken from you. They can only get into jeopardy is if you start to withdraw those funds, if you start to cash in your RRSPs to pay off your debt, well, then you can very quickly cash in all of your RRSPs and hopefully you paid off your debt, but then you've got no retirement left. Right. So what people a few years ago in my office were consistently coming in and saying, you know, I was told by the bank or I was told by a collection agency that if I don't cash in these RRSPs, they're just going to take them from me anyway. So that's what I did to make the pain stop. And would a bank, would a bank actually say that? Well, one of the big banks, of course, they would never say it corporately, but would an individual agent acting on their own behalf or perhaps even misinformed? Yeah, that does happen. Oh, Regularly it happens. That's we know the, awful. Yeah, we know the banks are being investigated for sales practices. And yes. yeah, I think overall they're very good corporate citizens, but there are rogue actors. And sometimes, you know, the incentive system of who gets a bonus for what can drive bad bad advice to clients. See, and I'm so naive that I think our Canadian banking system is so pure and so clean and mm-hmm. so innocent of all of those awful things that we read about that happen in other countries. Um, but that's, it sounds like I, I'm just being naive. Well, and again, not tarring everybody with the same brush, but sure. there are bad actors everywhere. And sure. the answer for the client or the, for the consumer is just to be informed and to treat your RRSPs as if it was a company pension plan. You can't cash in a company pension plan. And if you go into bankruptcy, you're going to keep that company pension plan. Same thing with RRSPs. Even if you had enough RRSP money to pay off your debts, I would still suggest at least come in, talk to a trustee, see what the options exist to deal with the debt, because almost always the wrong answer is cashing in your entire retirement. You pay off the debt. And then you know what? A couple of years later, you might be back in debt and you don't have any retirement to fall back on. Exactly. Okay. Uh, length of time that a bankruptcy takes. Yeah. So another big myth is, you know, bankruptcy takes years to complete. Um, you know, I hear people saying it's going to be seven years or 10 years or more. Um, and the facts are for 80% of people, bankruptcy runs for nine months. So less than a year. Wow. Not even a year. Yeah. Not the six, seven years, not, you know, multiple years for the average person who files for bankruptcy, who's not earning a whole lot of money. They're considered low income. They've never been bankrupt before. 
they're in bankruptcy for nine months. Okay. Where the six or seven years comes from is after a bankruptcy is over, there's a credit rating impact of six years after the bankruptcy is finished, but that doesn't mean you're untouchable. Most right. people rebuild their credit within just two to three years of a bankruptcy. If you phone up any mortgage broker and you just say, hey, hypothetically, if I went into bankruptcy, how long would it take for me to qualify again for a mortgage? They'll say, well, if you did everything right after the bankruptcy, if you didn't miss any payments and you saved some money and you've got a decent income, literally two to three years, you could have dealt with a horrible financial situation, rebuilding your credit, and then suddenly be mortgage worthy again. Very good. Um, Another myth Mm -hmm. or misconception is that um, somebody's going to come to my house and go through my stuff and tell me what I can and cannot keep. Exactly. I have a number of clients, and sometimes this really comes from various, um, you know, different home countries. So perhaps recent immigrants. Um, you know, in certain communities, I know if you file for bankruptcy, there's literally someone that comes to your house, does an inventory, puts a red tag on your door, a red tag on your furniture, and things like that. Um, if I had to visit everybody's house who filed a bankruptcy with me, I'd do nothing else other than visit houses. Sure. Um, so it's just something that's not done. Right. So a trustee is never going to visit your house. Um, a trustee is going to basically depend um, that this is a serious legal process. You're going to be swearing an affidavit in my presence saying, I have legally disclosed everything to you. It's full and complete to the best of my knowledge. And again, from my experience, people that I deal with, they're honest. They're just unfortunate. Things have happened to them. And you know, if they had the Van Gogh hanging on the wall or the baby grand piano in the living room, that's been long sold to try to pay the debts. Right. So, you know, essentially bankruptcy depends on the individual to be honest and to clear their assets fairly. um, But a trustee, as a matter of course, does not show up at anybody's house. And it's to their advantage to tell you Everything. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Right. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't think I have too many clients who don't tell me a hundred percent, but yeah, if something comes to light later on in the process, well then, you know, they suddenly lose that, that presumption that they're honest, but unfortunately they've been in a tough situation. If it looks like, you know, they're trying to use a bankruptcy for personal gain, um, you know, the courts can, can kind of sniff that out over time, but you know, less than a percent, maybe a 10th of a percent of the people that I see would be anything other than, you know, honest, but unfortunate people. What about um, what about if your situation is that you're uh, wanting to move, change residences for whatever reason, whether it be yeah. work or a family situation, or you just want to get out of Dodge uh, mm-hmm. and live maybe a, a more simply life, a simple life, uh, or travel if yeah. you want to s- see something? Yeah, and, and people have an assumption that you know if you file a bankruptcy, well, you surrender your passport. Or you you lose any right. rights, you know, to change jobs or to have interprovincial mobility or things like that. Essentially, you're surrendering a bunch of your rights as a Canadian. It's like a mo- It's like a mo- It's like scenes from a movie that we've yeah. all seen, right? Yeah. That oh. you have to surrender your passport. Yeah. If we could put together that composite movie of how bankruptcy is portrayed, exactly. my God, it's all wrong. It uh, is. No, the answer is there's zero impact on your passport, zero impact on your citizenship, your ability to travel. There's no direct link that I've ever seen, and I would know of anything with our Customs and Border Patrol and whether somebody owes money or is in a bankruptcy or not. So oh. you, you don't need to be concerned. You know, if you were in bankruptcy, if one of my clients says, "Can I travel?" I say, well, yeah, sure, as long as you can afford to do so, because obviously there's no credit anymore. But if this person's able to save a bit of money and do a bit of traveling, no issue for me as long as they've complied with the bankruptcy. Now, I know this is, uh, and we're just, we've got just a few more seconds, but it, and that, so that's moving or or traveling across the border as well, right? I mean, it seems that the border officials seem to know so much about Mm. us, but they wouldn't necessarily know that. No, absolutely not.
Excellent. If you'd like uh, more information from Blair, from Sands & Associates, check out their website, sands-trustee.com, on this or any topics that we cover on the show. Or call 1-800-661-3030 for that th- free consultation and to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're talking with Stuart Zuckerman, uh, who went to UBC, got his law degree from UBC. Uh, that's what he studies is family law. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about in this in this segment, the collaborative divorce process as well, which I think is an important sort of piece to add into it. And, uh, of course, there's so many, um, I mean, statistically, the number of people that uh, face divorce and all that kind of stuff, they're just crazy numbers these days. Yeah, and, th- and thanks, Stuart. Um, so, Stuart, you and I have, sp- have spoken before because quite often, you know, there's a intersection between, you know, relationships break down and there's a lot of, you know, debt or hangovers that, that can really accrue to each of the, the parties there. So I see it from a bankruptcy or a proposal point of view. Um, but I know, Stuart, there's been a big change in the law. And this is going back to about 2013. So you might say, well, that's been a while ago. But I just know in my discussions with folks, people still don't seem to be aware of some of the really key differences that changed. So I wonder if we can start there. Can you take me through, um, you know, the new Family Law Act, and new being in 2013, but what are some of the main changes there and what do people need to be aware of? Sure. So the main change to be aware of uh, is when that act came into force in 2013, replacing the Family Relations Act. New provisions uh, were applied to common law couples to deal with assets and debts and to treat common law couples the same way that married couples are treated. Um, And so uh, a common law spouse um, is defined in the act as as two people of any sex being in a spousal-like relationship for a period of two years or more. So once you're living with somebody for two years or more, they can be called your common-law spouse. And as soon as that happens, they may have, uh, once they become a common-law spouse, they have a right to uh, 50% of the growth in equity of any assets that their partner owned from the date of cohabitation forward. And their partner, of course, has the same right to an interest of 50% interest in the growth of that person's and the claiming person's uh, assets growth, equity growth from the date of cohabitation forward. And similarly, debts from the date of cohabitation forward of either either party uh, can be uh, divided 50-50 between the two spouses. And when you're trying to figure out whether someone is a common law spouse or not, you look at uh, different factors. The court has a discretion to determine that, but things like whether they share their finances with a joint with joint bank accounts or not, whether they one party cooked or cleaned for the other, when, whether one party took care of the other, whether the couple presented themselves in social settings as being exclusive, that they weren't, neither of them were seeing other people, and if that was known publicly, all of those are indicators that the, that the two people are common-law spouses or are acting in a spousal-like relationship. So it sounds like just pure living together isn't necessarily determinative. You could be common-law if you do all those other factors, but you still maintain separate residences. Would that be the, the, correct? That's right. You know, if, you're, if, it's a, if a boyfriend and girlfriend maintain their separate residences and one goes back and forth between the residences, he could argue or she could argue that they're not a common-law spouse because they're not living together um, in the same uh, place. But there are cases where, where the, you know, a, a couple may have, this type of relationship went on for 10 years, um, and let's say the husband had a separate condo that he occasionally went to, but uh, nonetheless, the parties were exclusive to each other. They, the husband supported the, the, wife, the wife, even 
not, even though they're not married, I'm calling them husband and wife. Um, and the court found that they were in a common law relationship despite the two residences. So it really depends on the nature of the relationship and, and the issue of exclusivity, whether the parties are seeing other people. Um, if, they're, if, they're made, if they've made a commitment to each other to, to not see other people, um, then they may be in a common law relationship, even in some cases where there's no intercourse taking place, no sexual activity taking place, so that the couple um, are together, they're financially supporting each other, they're supporting each other through cooking and cleaning, but there's no sexual relationship, that could still lead to a common law relationship, because the couple is, has intertwined other aspects of their lives and are living together. And how big of a change was that, Stuart? So b- before 2013, was common law even, you know, a thing, so to, so to speak? Were there any so, protections? So, yeah, before 2013, um, a common law spouse, someone who lived with someone for more than two years, only had their automatic presumpt- presumed right to claim spousal support under the Family Law Act. You could, under the Family Relations Act, you were able to claim spousal support. But in order to claim a property interest in the other party's um, uh, property, that was much more complicated. You had to launch something called a, a, a constructive trust lawsuit or an unjust enrichment lawsuit, and you had to prove every contribution you made during the relationship that added value to the to the equity of the property that you were making a claim against, and then deduct from that any um, bone, any benefits that you received during the relationship. And what was left often was a very small claim, and it was very expensive to bring those claims, so common law spouses were often shut out of the courts. Once they made the new Family Law Act in 2013, it became an automatic presumption that regardless of any contribution, so, so let me give you an example, you know, a, 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 we'll call it John and Mary. John um, meets Mary, he moves, she moves into his home that he owned before he ever met her, and let's say the home had a million dollars equity before he ever met her, and this is 20 years ago, a nice home in Vancouver worth a million bucks or a million in equity, mm-hmm. and they, they stay together for the next 10 years, and over those 10 years you know, John earns over 100000 a year, so he earns over a million dollars. Mary doesn't work at all, no children. Mary stays home for those 10 years, and, and at the end of 10 years, the house is now worth $3 million. So the house has gone up by two million dollars from the date of cohabitation to the date that the parties separate and Mary has not contributed a single penny to the equity in the house. John's paid all the bills for both parties. At the end of their relationship, Mary will have a claim to to one million dollars, essentially half of the two million dollar gain in equity. The home went up from one million to three million dollars. It's gone up two million dollars during the time they're together. She has an automatic presumed right to half of the gain, which is a million dollars. The only thing John can do under the Act is he can argue for something called a substantial unfairness. If he can establish to the court that it's substantially unfair for Mary to get half of the equity growth, then then that can be overturned. But I must tell you that that. You know, under the old Act, under the Family Relations Act, there was a provision about unfairness, and it took a lot of evidence to establish unfairness to get something other than a 50-50 division under the old Act. But now it's much harder because they added the word substantial unfairness, and, and constitutional interpretation says you must give meaning to every word in a statute. So the fact that the word substantial has been added to the word unfairness means it has to be something much more than just unfair for the court to ignore the automatic presumption under the Act for a 50-50 division to be given to both parties. So it's going to be very hard for people to get away from the 50-50 provision on the basis of non-contribution or things of that nature. And I liked, or or not that I need to defend Mary in this situation, but if she looked after the house and cleaned it and cooked and and made sure there was groceries and all those kinds of things, those are the kinds of things that give Mary this... um, 
additional or not additional, but kind of that that presence within that agreement or that uh, the breaking up of the uh, relationship. Am I right about that? Or well, well, the important thing to to realize here is that the that that this entitlement is actually regardless of any contribution by Mary. It used to be I that see. Mary, under the old Act, Mary would have to prove every contribution she made in order to earn an interest in the home. Now, the court says even if she made no contribution whatsoever, the starting presumption when they show up on the first day of court, when they show up, the court is going to look at the owner, John, and say, the law tells me, John, that Mary is automatically entitled to 50% of the increase in equity from the date you started living together to the date you separated, um, unless you can convince me that that would be substantially unfair. Um, and so even if Mary didn't lift a finger, if Mary was the laziest housewife in the world and just stayed home with her feet up eating bonbons, she would have an automatic entitlement to 50% of the growth in the equity. So it's not dependent on her having taken care of the home or cleaned or, or done any, or raised children or anything else. Okay. Um, just a quick question again for me. I don't, I mean, does, does that sound right to you or fair to you? Or is that a, is that a good, um, is that a good policy to have? Because I don't know. I'm just wondering. And I like, and I like Mary. I like the life she's got going on, but I'm just not too sure if it's, if that's sort of good. I can tell you that it's been, you know, the the law has been in place since 2013, and I have had many clients who've been shocked um, at the entitlement of their girlfriends. So I'm putting that word girlfriends in quotes. If their partner of more than two years has has now become their common law spouse, they thought that because they didn't marry, they were protected, that that the equity in the home was theirs, and they were quite shocked to discover that their, their 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 girlfriend or former fiance or boyfriend or right? spouse has yeah. this huge claim because in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland property values have escalated tremendously over the last you know from 2013 till now properties have gone up probably over 200 percent or something or 100 oh yeah and you don't have so, to be in a big house you could be in a like a one bedroom right. condo in kits and all of a sudden yeah. it's worth. Mm-hmm. Now there there have been some decisions that have come out from our from the Supreme Court that have given less than fifty percent in certain circumstances. So that when the court looks at a situation, if it's clear that, for example, let's say the parties maintain complete separate finances um, intentionally, the the you know the the, the John didn't trust Mary and didn't want her involved in any of his bank accounts, so he kept his account separate. Mary kept her account separate. Um, and John kept track of the bills he paid, and let's say Mary paid for her own vacations. If the parties lived independent financial lives, that may be a factor that the court can look at on substantial unfairness to say this was not within the contemplation of the parties and it would be substantially unfair because the way they maintain their finances, um, it didn't work that way. Let's say, for example, at year five, uh, the roof collapsed, and even though Mary had had a job, let's say, and she was working, um, and she kept her money in her own accounts, that she refused to help John pay for the roof repair, and John had to go out and get a loan to repair the roof and then pay the loan off. That would be a, that would be evidence to show that the parties never had the intention of sharing the equity. So there are always, you know, as a lawyer, and especially as a trial lawyer, I can tell you every trial I go to, it's a, it's a storytelling exercise, it's, and, and every trial turns on its own uh, facts. Even though the law may say one thing, you can, judges are always focused on fairness, and you can always present your, your evidence and, and convince a judge one way or the other what is reasonable and what is fair. But the, the starting presumption of the law is now set to protect common law spouses so that they don't have to prove what contributions they made. There's just an automatic presumption that they're entitled without the necessity of proof.
Yeah, and this is very interesting stuff, Stuart. We're just down to about our, our last minute or so. I wonder if you, if you can touch on the division of debts, because very often in here uh, on the show, I'm telling people you marry somebody, you don't marry their debts. Visa or MasterCard can't collect from you if your husband or wife incurs a debt. But how does that work when the relationship dissolves? So you're correct, as between, the, as between the couple and their creditors, the creditors cannot sue Mary for John's debts or John for Mary's debts. That's, that's true. But under the Family Law Act, John and Mary, just same as their assets, are equally liable to each other for 50% of the growth in either party's debts from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation. Now, the court will look at how the debts were incurred, and usually there's this qualifier that the debt, uh, presumed qualifier that the debt has to be incurred for a family purpose. So debts for clothing or eating out or groceries or gas or regular living expenses would all be considered debts for a family purpose. Whereas if John went on a bender to Las Vegas and lost, you know, 10000 on his credit card gambling, that's not a debt that the court would divide between the parties, even though it was incurred during the relationship. Mind you, if John and Mary together went to Las Vegas and lost 10000 on John's credit card gambling, and they were both participating in that loss, uh, in that gambling event, then it would be, um, the, the liability would be shared between them, and it would come out of their uh, otherwise entitlement of the share of the asset. So the, the court would adjust the, the asset share that each party gets, the equity out of the home, for example, would be adjusted to ensure that the parties are paying that debt 50-50 between them. If you need more information from Stuart, I'm going to give you his website, www.zuckermanlaw.ca. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Blair, and we've talked so much on the show about the different ways people can get out of debt. Mm -hmm. Bankruptcy, consumer proposal, and all the ins and outs of that, which, which are great. But I think sometimes I always forget or tend to shy away from, like, the cost, because I'm never yeah. quite sure what it's going to cost somebody, because it really is an individual thing, correct? Yeah, yeah, and, you know, I have almost all clients will ask me that question. I never take it as an insult. You know, hey, how do you get paid? What's, yeah. in, it, what's in it for you? Because everybody you deal with, there's something in it for them, and as a trustee, yeah, we don't work for free. You don't, and your office, it's filled with professionals, people mm-hmm. who are experts in their own fields, whether it be the counseling, whether it be the person like yourself, the licensed uh, trustee who's going to go through everything piece by piece and gather the information and figure it all out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, good. I'm glad we're talking about this. How do you get paid? So what, let's talk about the cost. Let's talk about personal bankruptcy first. And what's the cost of filing uh, for personal bankruptcy? Yeah. So, so first off, before we even get there, you know, right off the top, if someone's struggling with debt, there's no charge to come and see us. So a trustee will spend time. We'll do at least two, if not three meetings, you know, to help you explore the whole situation. And very clearly, you don't pay a dime until you decide either you're going to do a bankruptcy or a proposal, and then the government kicks in and says what you have to pay. Everything is heavily regulated. I'll give you all the details on this segment, but just be aware, if you don't need the help of a trustee, a trustee still is going to spend a lot of time with you for no charge, give you a whole bunch of advice, help you figure out, navigate the waters a little bit, and be a resource for you, Uh, but all that's at no charge for a consultation. Now, if it makes sense for you to file a personal bankruptcy, so I often get asked, you know, well, is bankruptcy subsidized by the government? The government kicks in some money or different things like that, and the answer is no. It's actually when I file a bankruptcy as a trustee, I need to pay the government money to actually file that bankruptcy. Um, so there's out-of-pocket costs, you know, right off the top. A trustee has to pay 
a filing fee. What it means for the individual is the cost of filing bankruptcy, it really comes into two categories of people and it's all based on your income. So if you're considered low income and low income in BC and across the country, it's a very low cutoff. It basically says if you're earning less than roughly $2,150 per month, after tax take home pay as a single person, you're considered low income. And if you go into bankruptcy as a low income individual, you're just asked to pay the cost of the bankruptcy, which works out to $1,800 payable over a term of nine months. That includes everything. So it includes the filing fee to register the bankruptcy in Canada, as I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, it includes two financial counseling sessions, which are some of the most beneficial time you'll ever spend. You sit down one-on-one -on -one with our counselors, not a group session. We talk to you about budgeting, about rebuilding your credit after the bankruptcy, trying to make sure it's a one-time thing in your life. You come through the doors. So you get that included as well. Um, and then we also have to prepare and file your tax returns. So you'd normally be paying an accountant or maybe doing it yourself. But if you're in bankruptcy, the trustee is mandated by government to get you caught up on your taxes and file your tax returns for the year of the bankruptcy. And the whole idea of that is there's a thing called the fresh start principle. And what it means is that when you finish a bankruptcy, it should be a fresh start. You shouldn't owe anybody any money. And the government, you know, you could owe the government money. Um, so making sure that if you got to doing your taxes in bankruptcy, all that debt gets included in a bankruptcy as well. Now, the other scenario for a bankruptcy, so as I mentioned, there's a scenario if you're low income and that's a nine months, $1,800 arrangement. And normally the $200 a month is a lot less than the person is actually paying on interest or minimum payments each month. Um, but still, it can be a bit tough to afford. And, you know, we'll work with folks. We'll try to do a longer term payment plan if we have to. Now, if somebody is not low income, so the thing to keep in mind here is the cost and the duration of a bankruptcy. It doesn't matter at all based on the debt. So you're not held in bankruptcy longer because you ran up a million dollars in debt and you don't get out of bankruptcy sooner because you only owed $5,000. It's not related at all to the amount of your debt. It's only related to your monthly income. So if you're not low income in Canada, meaning that you're earning more than roughly the $2,150 per month as a single person, bankruptcy runs for a year longer than the original nine months. So it runs for 21 months in total. I'm sorry, I just got confused because yeah. you talked about the amount yeah. of debt. It's not the time isn't determined by the amount exactly. of the debt. Yep. It's what your income is. That's right. And that's so key. And I know this is a confusing thing, so slow me down if I get if I go too far. Here. Well, it is. So yeah. let's say I owe, pick a number, huge number, a big number. 120000 Okay. Yeah. That, which is a pretty big number. Yeah. My income is $1,000 or let's say, no, no it's got to be over, it's got to be over, let's say it's twenty five. $3,000 a month. $3,000 a month, okay. Okay, yep. and I'm going to file for personal bankruptcy. That's mm -hmm. my income is 3000 and that's what my take-home is, right? right? After tax, yep. After tax. So, and I owe 125000 is that what we said? How does that work? That seems like a, a short amount of time to pay off a huge amount of money, but I know I'm not yep. paying it all off that's, either, right? That's the whole point. That's so the key. It, in bankruptcy, it's different than a proposal. In a proposal, you're paying a percentage of the debt back. Maybe it's 20 maybe it's 40%, something like Fair that. Fair enough, sure. In a bankruptcy, zero relation to the debt. Got it. So okay. when, when the debts are just so high, again, I've had some people, you know, $500,000 assessments from CRA, they can't afford to pay off a third or a quarter of that. If they go into bankruptcy, it's the same bankruptcy as if they had owed $50,000 and it. not five hundred. Of course, 000. that makes complete sense to me now. Okay, I, I'm not so, yeah, I, I, I'm less confused than I was. So. Oh.
that's good. That's the point of the show. Yay! Yeah. Yay! <laughs> but now the whole dichotomy here too is you've got the low income person who's finished bankruptcy in nine months, yes. and then you've got somebody who's not low income. That's essentially they're accrued a penalty. So it's an extra year in bankruptcy. They've got to spend a year longer being bankrupt, and what that means is every month they've got to give the trustee a report on their earnings and verify their income. Um, you know, there's not too many limitations in the jobs that they can take on, but you know they couldn't be a lawyer administering trust funds or things like that. So sure. there's a few limitations. So you do want to get out of bankruptcy. Um, but the issue is that you're also requested or required to make payments based on your income. So if you're low income, you pay the $200 a month for nine months. If you're not low income, the government says, okay, low income guideline is $2,150. That's what we think you need to make ends meet. And it doesn't matter if your rent is $1,800. The government just says, here's the low income guideline. As soon as you exceed $2,150, you get to keep half of the extra and you have to pay half to the trustee. Okay. So coming to your example, I'm going to use a little bit rounder numbers just to make it easy for me. Yes. Uh, if you were earning thirty-one fifty, you're above twenty-one fifty by a thousand dollars. If you were in bankruptcy each month, you would pay half of that difference, or five hundred dollars. Okay. So for your $120,000 of tax debt, if you were in bankruptcy earning $3,150 per month, you'd pay back about $10,000 of that debt, you'd be discharged on the rest, and you'd move on with your life in 21 months. Okay. All right. I think, I think that's, it's certainly more clear to me than it was before. I get it now. Mm-hmm. So what about how does that differ then, or should we just talk about a consumer proposal in and of itself, yeah. um, the differences? Yeah. So where a bankruptcy has no relation to the amount of your debt, it's only based on your income. Yeah. Consumer proposal is completely related to the amount of your debt because the way a proposal works is we put together a scenario, an analysis, and we say if you were to file for bankruptcy based on that $120,000 of debt, you'd pay back about $10,000. That's about an 8% recovery. That's not good for your creditors, and nobody can reject a bankruptcy in Canada. Your creditors can't say, hey, we don't want to accept this. You keep paying us. It's your right, and they've got to accept that lower repayment. Right. If you do a consumer proposal, we offer them a greater recovery. So maybe instead of $10,000 payable, you offer them $20,000 over a period of a longer time. Right. So it's some percentage of the debt, you know, in this case, maybe it's 15 or 20% of the debt. Usually it's in the range of 20 to 40% as a ballpark, but you pay off that reduced percentage and you pay zero fees on top of that. Exactly. Zero fees, zero interest. What, what you can afford to repay on the debt is enough. Everybody else gets paid out of that. The trustee gets paid, the government filing fees, the counseling fees get paid. So for an example, I was helping a client a couple weeks ago. Um, he had $55,000 of total debt. We did a consumer proposal to reduce it to $23,400 in total. So he made monthly payments of about $650 over 36 months. The only thing he paid was when he signed the proposal, he made the first month's payment, and then he just kept paying after that per month. And you worked that out with them. Exactly. With that person like, and their creditors, right? Oh, you yeah. you propose, this is what we're going to pay you. Yeah. I'm representing Joe or Mary. Uh, this is what we're going to pay. And then they agree. Well, it's even better than that, Elaine, because if I was representing Joe or Mary, then the creditors might think I'm trying to pull a fast one. I'm an independent officer of the court. I'm in the middle. I'm saying, here's a fair settlement for everybody involved. Yes. And 95 to 99% of the time, people accept those Yeah, those absolutely. Proposals. And that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's important, though. I know that you that it needs to be absolutely clear. Absolutely. So Joe or Mary gets to pay back the debt, which is awesome. They feel better about themselves. Very, very good. If this is resonating with you, if any of this information, if it's hitting home or it's hitting somebody uh, close to you and you know that they could use the help, refer them 
to Blair at Sands and Associates. It's so easy to do. I'll give you their phone number again. It's 1-800-661-3030. And their, and their line, their byline is helping you get out of debt. And they'll help you figure out how to, the, the very best way to do that. If you'd like more information, you just want to read about things, sands-trustee.com is the website. It's got a ton of good information. You can also set up a free consultation and uh, get an appointment for that free consultation and uh, get a hold of an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.